All right, so we're in 1 John chapter 2. If you remember last time, uh, we, we did a brief introduction to 1 John, and then we covered 1 John chapter 1 through chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And chapter 2 of 1 John, you have, uh, of course, different Bibles have, or Bibles have different headings. And some, as I mentioned before, sometimes they're pretty good, sometimes they're totally worth anything. Uh, but here I have, in verses 3 through 6, that the test uh, of Christians, or the test of knowing Christ, in verses 3 through 6 of 1 John chapter 2. And so we're going to begin here by looking at verse 3. It says, Now by this we know that we know Him. Actually, let's just back up for a moment. Let's just read the first two verses and put all this together. 1 John 2, verse 1 and following. says, My little children, these things are right to you so that you may, may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we, that we know Him if we keep His commandments. And we mentioned this, I think, a little bit last week. You ever hear someone ask the question, or maybe at some point in our lives we've asked the question to ourselves, how do I know that I am saved? If you look at verse 3, how do we know that we are saved? We know, of course, we have to obey the gospel. Many times, though, to help clarify, many times we have those who obey the gospel in a genuine manner, but afterwards maybe they kind of get downhearted, they kind of get a little, dis- little they have some rough things that happen in life, and then we get to wonder about, are they really saved? According to verse 3, how do we know that we are a follower of God or a Christian? Keep His commandments. We keep His commandments, right? Those who do not keep His commandments, as we all know through this, obviously are not those who know Him or are not Christians. So he says, by this we know that we know Him. And this know is not just an acknowledgement of Him or, or recognizing who Christ is, but it is a knowing Him in the sense that we have obeyed the gospel, we know who He is, He is our awesome God, right? And so it's not just a we know Him. You know, sometimes we say, well, I know that person. That's not what we're talking about. It is we know Him, we are a follower of Him. And so we know that, he says in verse 3, if, and there's that condition there in verse 3, if we keep our, or keep rather his uh, commandments. And so this is more than just, again, just knowing him. It's actually knowing the truth, the commandments, the word, and walking, as we say, say as well, walking in the life. And so when someone asks us the question, how can I know that I am saved? Have you obeyed the gospel? If not, then we need to obey the gospel, right? If you have obeyed the gospel, we're still wondering about that, then we have to ask ourselves, are you keeping the commandments of God? Because when we do that, then we can know we are saved. We have sinned in our life, we repent of it, that's part of being a Christian, right? That's another way we can know we are saved. If we're questioning things, or have concerns about sins in our life, we need to repent of those things, and bring those things to God. Here, looking at verse 4, says, He who says, I know him, again, just like we saw in verse 3, not just saying, I know him, but a following of him, and does not keep his commandments, he says, is a what? Is a liar, he says. So if you say that you're a follower of God, or if you say you're a Christian, you don't do God's commands or follow God's commands, the Bible, according to the Bible, says, you are a liar. And he says, and the truth is not in him. Now, if you look at verses 3 and 4, are these verses, could they be controversial? 
What I mean by that could be people who read these verses and have a very, very big problem with that. Yeah. Because we know there are some today in the world, when we say the religious world, who, who believe or teach that once you believe in Christ, that's all you have to do, and that you're saved no matter what after that. No matter what, right? They, they teach the doctrine of once you're saved, you're always saved. Now, if you look at verses 3 and 4, it does teach how we can know that we are saved. It does not teach that once we are saved, we're always saved, because we have the, those conditional words there, like in verse, two, verse 3, if we keep His commandments, right? Verse 4, He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. So what John is telling us here, again, inspired by God, is if you want to know that you are a follower of Christ, and you have to obey the gospel as we know previously through this, but then you have to keep His commandments. Verses 3 and 4, do, does the idea of keeping His commandments, does that come across as optional if you want to be a Christian? No. It's not optional. Verse 4 says, The person who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, which means they're not being honest, they're not really a follower of God. And he says in verse 4, And the truth is not in Him. You think about that phrase, the truth is not in Him. It means they do not keep that truth, Right? David talks about how the Word of God was written on his heart. There's like a lamp also, he says, to his feet and a light to his path. It was part of, we might say, but I'll put it sometimes, it was part of who he was. When the truth of God's Word is part of who we are, I mean, this is, this is what we do, we don't view it as optional, but because we love God, this is what we're going to do each and every day, the very best of our ability. And when we fall short, we repent of it, and we strive to remain faithful to God. That, in a very large, or large nutshell, is how we do it, right? But verses 3 and 4 tells us that a person who does not do those things, who does not keep God's commandments, but just simply goes around saying, well, I'm a Christian. Well, he says in verse 4, if they don't keep his word, they are what? They are a liar, and his truth is not in them. And so we definitely don't want to be those who fall in that category. We want to be those who fall in the category, as we find in verse 3, the ones who keep, the ones who keep his commandments. Now, someone want to read uh, verse 5. We get going sometimes, and I just keep reading. Someone want to read 1 John 2 and verse 5. For he whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Okay, so whoever keeps his word, this goes back to what we just saw in verse 3. Now, John here really begins to kind of, I won't say hammer, but begins to really hit hard about what it means to be a Christian. Don't be a so-called Christian. We also have used that phrase sometimes when we think of other individuals who are not really a Christian. And we say, well, they are a Christian so-called or a so-called Christian. They claim to be one. But as, as we read there, as he read there in verse 5, says, whoever keeps his word, the truly the love of God is perfected in him. That is, is completed, is brought to its fullness in him. Because the person who follows the word, the, the word of God will be able to know what God has in store for them, right? If we are a follower of God and follower of His Word and we keep His Word, what's one of the big reasons, and it's probably, we could probably put a lot of that, but what's one of the big reasons why a person obeys the Gospel? Now there's several, there's really no wrong answer to this. Obey God. To obey God? What's another reason? We want to be obedient to God, we want to obey the Gospel, but what else? What is part of that? We want to be saved. We want to be saved. We want to have that forgiveness of our sins, right? Mm -hmm. 
And as a result of that, we want, because we know the only way we get to heaven is through obedience to the gospel and through our sins, and we can't do that if we are still in our sins. So whoever keeps his word, truly love of God is perfected in him by this, by what? By keeping his word, as we saw in verse 5, by keeping his word, as we saw in verse 3, he says, by this, he says, we know that we are in him. If we ever get to the point in our life that we, we're not sure if we're really a Christian anymore, go back and read verses like this. And it'll help us understand that if there is sin in our life, that's the first step we need to take care of that, all right, by repentance. But ask yourself, am I keeping the words of God and obeying His commands? Because He says here, as we saw in verse 3, now here in verse 5, whoever keeps His word... That's the one who the love of God is perfected in, is shown in. There is nothing lacking in God's love for us, but what you say sometimes there's a lot lacking in our love for God, and that we fall short. Paul tells us, tells tells those in Rome, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means we all have sin in our life we need to take care of, and there's only one way to do that. All right, I'm going to read verse 6. He who says he abides in him of himself to walk just as he walks. Now to me, this is one of my favorite verses here, in, at least in this chapter, because it's really, to me, it's him calling out these so-called. Yes, it's encouraging the Christian to know that you can know that you are saved. But it's also calling out those <coughs> Christians, right? Because sometimes when you, when you talk to your neighbors or your coworkers, either they're not interested at all, or they are already Christians, right? They already have a church home, is what we hear sometimes. Um, if you look at verse 6, He who says he abides in him, that is Christ, and so the first he is us, the him is Christ, he, the person who says he abides in him, we say that we are in Christ, he says there's something we have to do, right? He's just really repeating what he's already said, but he's, making, he's really trying to drive the point home, make it very clear. He who says he abides in him, or we, we say we are in Christ, he says, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. How did Christ walk? We don't mean physically. We don't mean, you know, he had a certain way of walking or along the street. But how did he live? That's what he's talking about. That walk there is meantime put in place of how a person lives their life. How did Christ live his life on the earth? No sin. No sin? What else? He was selfless. He was selfless. All those things are a part of him doing what? The will of God, right? When he came to earth, he was doing the will of God, which includes living a sinless life, being selfless, being a servant, all these other things as well. He lived, he, he followed the will of God, the commandments of God. And so if we say that we are in him, there in verse 6, he says, we ought to walk just as he walked. Is we ought to live just as he lived. Is that a tough thing to do? Well, yeah. Because we're going to make mistakes. You think about the, the things that Christ faced, and we can list a whole bunch of them. But keep in mind, he faced, really, even as an infant, uh, even if the infant child didn't know this, faced hardship, right? Because his parents had to flee immediately, right? Remember? The, the Pharaoh wanted to come after him and have him put to death, basically. 
And then he was he's raised in Nazareth, and then shortly after uh, he began you know going into synagogues, even and teaching, even asking questions, even at a young age. And people began to ask basically who he was. But when he began his earthly ministry, about the age of thirty, he began facing a lot. He began being faced with hardships, didn't he? Remember when he went to the wedding feast and he was asked by his earthly mother to to make some wine? He said, "My hour has not yet come." Now that wasn't really we might say it wasn't a hardship, but was it really a test? It could have been. He could have thought, you know what, I know what God's will is, but I want to make sure she's happy. But he didn't do that. He did fulfill that. He did fulfill those things, but in his own time, right? But he began to face numerous hardships, and he endured through them all, remaining perfectly sinless. Now, we are not the Son of God, and we do face similar hardships. But one of the things that we have that the non-Christian does not is that when we, as we strive to live that Christian life, if we make a mistake, if we sin, that's what I mean by that, make a mistake, we sin, we can take care of that, right? So we can still be blameless, not sinless. You know, Job was called blameless, not sinless. And he's called perfect. And so we can be per- we can be blameless in the sense that we are trying to follow after Christ and when we make a, make a mistake or sin, we confess those things to God and they are forgiven. And when we do that, when we follow God's commands and when we repent, when we fall short, we are striving to walk in the light, right? To walk just as He walked. And that is our goal uh, in life. But you think about, think about the life of Christ. I won't say He had help along the way, but did He have encouragement along the way? I think He did have help along the way. He had the Father, right? But did He have encouragement along the way? One of the things you find about, about Christ is he prayed often. What's interesting is Paul also talks about praying all the time. He's one who told us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, to pray without the uh, You find, if you look at the life of Christ, you look, we see, of course, his teaching. We see all the things he did. But you look at some of the aspects like when he prayed. The time he, 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 made, he made specific efforts to be alone at times and to pray. He made specific efforts to be with the brethren, right? If you remember when, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane for that, where Christ would pray three times, I, I, think, I think it's Matthew's account, maybe it's Luke's account, that bears out that Judas knew they might be there because they came there often, which means they probably came there often to pray or just encourage one another. Now think about, I bring that up because we see what they did. We see the numerous times he prayed alone. We see numerous times they, they were together and encouraging one another and praying together. We see the apostles numerous times uh, they were together, together with individuals and with the church. Peter mentions that there in Acts how when they were let go they were more <clears throat> they were more bold, right? Him and, and his companion there. They went out and told them what happened. What, what happened? They prayed and they were filled with great boldness, right? What does that mean for us today? Can we follow that example? Should we pray more? Should we spend more time being together with our brethren to encourage one another? It's hard to be encouraged by one another and to encourage others when you don't see them, right? It's hard to be encouraged and to, to listen to God through His Word uh, when we don't open it. You know, Christ uh, is a great example, obviously, of how to overcome temptation, of how to overcome sin in general, how to overcome those who who mock you and give you a difficult time, even face to face. We find that after many times, after his rebuking of individuals and after his teaching, 
it would seem that many times after a session, as I call it, that you find him somewhere praying or his disciples praying with him. And to me, that's an encouragement for us today. We should follow that same example. And then we too can uh, be able to overcome things that come down our path that might cause us to stray and keep us from being one who abides in him. Okay, let's look at verses 7 and, and through 11. Verses 7 through 11 have here uh, commandments, new and old. This might sound a little bit confusing as you go through here because it's new in the sense that it's new to the New Testament Christianity, but not new in the sense it's never been heard of before. And basically what he's talking about in verses 7 through 11 is really focused on loving the brethren is what he's talking about. He thinks it's not a new commandment, uh, it's an old one, but it's new to you type of thing. The idea that it was first time, I say one of the first times, they're talking about love in this sense in, in the church, but it's not really new uh, in the sense it's never been talked about. So let's look at verses 7 uh, through 11. And let's look at verses 7 and 8 here together. It says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. So these brethren have been taught before, as we're going to see, the, the, the topic is really love. So they've been taught about this before, as you see there in verse 7. Uh, if you look at verse, uh, we'll go back and look at verse 7. The old commandment is explained. It is the word which they have been taught, which he had heard from the beginning, in any case the message that was taught or preached to these people. If you look at verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which is true in him and in you. So the commandment, as we find here, is true in Him and in you. The fact is that the commandment is true in Christ and in us. It's not a false commandment. It's not a false idea. It says, uh, because, you, uh, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, as he says there in verse, uh, verse 8. The darkness means the really just moral blindness or ignorance. Uh, it is passed away. It's passing away. Now the divine light of Christ has come to the world. Christ has come to the world to what? To remove sin from the world when we obey the gospel. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining, Christ has what? He has brought light into the world. John tells us that in John chapter 1. He is the true light. It brings light to all the world for all mankind, right? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. Looking at verse 9, it says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So, he begins to talk about this as a new commandment. It's not, or it's not an old commandment, not a new commandment, kind of back and forth there. But either he's repeating something they have heard before, and he's really reiterating it here, this love for one another. He says he is in the light and hates his brother, there in verse 9. He says, is in darkness till now. Now, we're going to come back to that word hate, but uh, that's a very strong word. There's things I dislike, and sometimes I, I, I try to catch myself. Sometimes I say, oh, I hate this or I hate that. That's a, it's really a very strong word to say. Uh, but he says, he who says he is in the light. So a person who claims they are a Christian, right? And hates his brother is in darkness, or in darkness is a reference many times to sin, right? Is in darkness until now, which means they are in darkness so as long as they are hating their brother. Now we're talking about here our brother in Christ, our brethren in Christ. Now I understand perfectly well, and we can do too, that sometimes we can be discouraged or get irritated with one another because our personalities are very different, obviously. Everybody has their own personality or their own opinions about things. 
And we can be a highly irritated people. This is one of the reasons I'm trying to use the word hate, because sometimes if, if I say, well, I hate that person, I don't really mean I hate that person. It means I hate what they're doing. Or I hate that idea because it's not a very good one. Uh, we should be very careful with that. We should be, I think about trying myself, and I say we should, I say myself included most definitely. Try to use, think about it in the sense that I don't really like that idea, or I dislike this or dislike that, because hate is a very strong word. Hate to me, when you say you hate someone, it's almost like you, some people would, would wish ill will upon others. And that's not what we want to do. Uh, he who hates his brother, he says, is in darkness until now, there in verse 9. So can you hate your Christian brother and be right in the sight of God according to verse 9? No. That's why we have to be very careful when we get frustrated with one another. We can't be those who say, well, I hate that or I hate that person. Uh, you know, we, it's, it's things that we have to deal with in our own lives. And hopefully uh, we never, uh, when we feel that way, that we will repent of that. So he hates his brother is in darkness or is in sin until now. Looking at verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Now this love is a, well, I think of many times when I think about this love, I think about a, a, we have a genuine concern, respect, and yes, we have a Christian love for that person. It's not the same love we have for our spouse, obviously, maybe not the same kind of love we have for our children, but we do love one another, right? We've all probably received cards at some times, at times that have said, in Christian love. We understand what that means. We love them as a brother in Christ. And that's what we find here in verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. When I was preaching somewhere else, I had a, a sister come up and say, you know, I'm really afraid of these two families, or this family, is hating this other individual, and it's really making me concerned about what's going on. And so I talked to a few of them, and then we had a lesson about what it means to hate your brother and the dangers of it. And First John 2 here helps us remember that. There is a big danger when we hate one another. We may not always get along. Uh, we may have disagreements. We may have differences in, in opinions and have uh, strong personalities, but we cannot be one who turns to hating one another. And verse 10 says, He who loves his brother abides in his life, and there is no cause for stumbling in him, which means he loves his brother, he doesn't do anything to purposely cause his brother to stumble. I mean, I don't want to tell me before, not here, so don't get any ideas, but tell me once before that, you know, I have a, my, well, my temptation, she says, is, is gambling. He doesn't gamble, but it's hard for him not to make little bets with people. Oh, you know, I'll bet you, you know, ten bucks you can't do whatever it was. Not really thinking about it. That was, he was being sincere. That was one of his hard temptations. Now, if I have him over to the house, and I'm going to watch the betting odds for, for teams on ESPN, if you're not familiar with that, what it is is people will bet based upon who they think will win, and they'll give them odds on that. Now, I've watched that before not realizing what it was. In fact, I watched it last weekend at a friend's house, and asked him, I didn't realize what, what it was. Said, Does this mean this team is going to win this amount, that amount? No, it means, you know, this, that, and the other. Now, he wasn't betting on it. We were watching for the same reason for the replays and highlights and things like that. But they would give those types of odds, right? If it was scrolling across the bottom or they were talking about them. Now, would I watch that purposely in front of someone else? Would that be giving them a, a cause to stumble? And if it was some betting odds, it very well could. We may not think about it. But there's other ways we could watch highlights, right? And so we want to make sure that we are not giving 
someone, a, a, a cause to stumble. And when I mention that, I don't mean this person is struggling with this every single day or is some big uh, uh, danger for them, but it is, it is a temptation. We all have things that can tempt us more than others. Uh, looking at verse 11, it says, But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Could that be any more clear about walking in darkness because you hate a brother or sister in Christ? Now, the word brother here means brethren, to be honest. It means male or female, not just first hating another male member of the church. It's men or women. He who hates his brother is in darkness. We said that's sin. And walks in darkness. So they're, they're in sin. They're walking in sin so long as they're hating their brother. He says, and does not know where he is going. Now we're talking about spiritually speaking. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't realize that he is in a sinful situation because he is blinded by sin and probably by hatred as well. He says, because the darkness, as he points out in verse 11, has blinded his eyes. The sin has blinded his eyes. The sin could be most definitely just the hatred he has for his brother. Has caused him to not realize what he is doing. You ever have some, know someone, or maybe we have been guilty of this in the past at some point, that we get wrapped up in something, and we realize later, you know what, I need to get away from that. That's not the thing to be doing. We don't realize what's going on and realize that what we're doing is not a good idea. It's sinful, and we stop it and we come out of it, hopefully. But sometimes we can get swept up in it. You think people can get swept up in emotions? I'll answer that for you. Yes. Yes, they can. Have you ever done, been, been at a wedding? Uh, people get swept up in emotions, especially when it comes to the planning portion of those things. <clears throat> planning for, for a funeral, uh, very emotional time. Don't get me wrong, emotion is not wrong, but it can be used in a very wrong way. Uh, and we find here in verse 11, this hatred is definitely an emotion. And it's so strong, he points out here in verse 11, that he doesn't realize he's walking in sin, and he's blinded by the sin of it, the hatred he has for his brother. Now that is a person <clears throat> who has a serious problem, isn't it? That we're in sin and it's because we hate our brother. It's because we hate our brother or sister in Christ. And that sin, he points out in verse 11, is so strong that it has blinded our eyes we can't even see where we're going anymore. A very sad and really a scary uh, situation as well. Okay, let's, let's move forward here looking at verse 12 and following. Uh, here, where uh, John addresses, he addresses Christians, but he uses phrases like little children, young men, fathers. I think in some translations he even uses maybe the idea of, of infants. Maybe that's just how it's translated sometimes. But he's talking to Christians who have been faithful for de- different periods of time, what he's talking about, at least in my opinion. He says in verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Little children that reference to. <clears throat> those who have been Christians for very long. Uh, it could be a reference to newborn Christians or uh, new, newly converted Christians, uh, but it also can be a reference to just those who haven't been Christians for very long. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Well, our sins are forgiven we put our obedient faith in God, right? And we, we, we reference, we, we talk about how we confess Christ's name, we confess that he is the Son of God, he goes on to say in verse 13, I write to you fathers, this being a reference to those who have been Christians longer, 
he says here, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And now he, he references several of these groups more than once. I think he mentions all of them twice, actually. He says, Right to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Uh, they have had a very close, uh, some commentators say this to be reference to individuals there who actually had seen Christ firsthand. Possible. But I think, at least in my opinion, it seems more some of those who have been Christians for a long time, maybe since the beginning of Acts chapter 2, since the beginning of the church being established. That could be a reference to what he's talking about. To me, that seems to be fitting. It doesn't mean they didn't know Christ personally or see him. But mm-hmm. from the beginning, in my mind, I think about the beginning of the New Testament church. They've been faithful since that period of time. Not that the little children have been faithful, but these have been faithful longer since the beginning there, as he points out there. He goes on to say there in verse 13, I write to you young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. It's interesting he talks about young men, which again is a reference to uh, Christians who are members who have been Christians very long, but long enough, as he points out here, to, over, to have overcome the wicked one. Now this is a reference to, we know the wicked one is a reference to Satan, right? Uh, overcome the wicked ones, just simply talking about how they have overcome already hardships and temptations and sin that have been brought on by Satan. If you, if you were to take any temptation and back it all the way up, where does it come from? It comes from Satan, right? And so uh, he talks about how these young men have overcome the wicked one. They've already overcome some temptations, they've already overcome some sins. They're already showing their strength, even as young men, those who have been Christians for very long. They're not, the, they're not the little children. They're not the fathers. They are the young men. He says in verse uh, 13, he says, Write to you little children, because you have known the Father. So he, he talks about how they have known him because you have obeyed the gospel, right? You have known the Father. You know God. You know Christ. You have obeyed the gospel. Verse 14, I write to you fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now, it's not they have known him from the beginning. They have known him who is from the beginning. They have known Christ. Christ, we know, as we reminded in 1 John, or John chapter 1, rather, is eternal in nature, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And he goes on to illustrate how it became flesh, as manifested among us, which is Christ from the earth. And so Christ was there in the beginning with God. And so here we find verse 14, that same idea, because you have known him who is, you find there that that is italicized in the New King James, uh, from the beginning. We have known, you have known who? Christ, who is from the beginning. I write to you, to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one, there in verse 14. So he reiterates what we already talked about, really. Uh, how he says these young men are strong. He's not talking about physically, he's talking about spiritually. Because you think about sometimes today, if you were to have a spiritual mirror and you flexed your muscles, would you see any spiritual muscles? I hope that we would. Now, physically we wouldn't, or physically we may not, but spiritually we want to have a spiritual muscle, right? That is, we are strong enough to overcome temptations. We're strong enough to overcome sin and recognize sin, right? And so, though we don't see our spiritual muscles Literally today, God sees how strong we are. Paul, John here mentions how strong they were. He saw how they have overcome the wicked one already. Uh, it doesn't mean they're done with him, but they have overcome him before. They've overcome hardships. And this could be reference to things 
Uh, maybe he had something specifically in mind, how they came against them, and they stood their ground and overcome whatever that difficulty was. Uh, that's definitely a possibility as well. And so you have, again, the, you have the newer ones in the faith, you have the fathers who have been uh, faithful for, for a long time, and then you have the younger men who are strong and no doubt growing and have overcome already some temptations. So you think about that, he has, he's referencing new Christians who have had their sins forgiven, right, for his name's sake. You have the younger, the younger ones, not the fathers yet, who are showing their strength, and you have the other ones who are remaining faithful. Do you think that was encouraging to John? To see new converts, people who have been faithful for a while, who are they're showing their strength, they're showing how much they've grown. Do you see those who have been faithful for a long time? Should that be encouraging for us as well? We can, we can think of, you know, even here in Newlegal, we, we can think of a few who, have, who are newly converts or new converts. We have uh, those who have been faithful for a long time, not maybe as long as others, which we would call in that category of the young age there, right, the young men. And then you have those who have been faithful for a long time, the fathers just reference. I don't really think he's talking just about men, he says fathers, or young men, he talks about the men. Uh, I think it's a reference to brothers and sisters in general. Uh, fathers, he could be talking to the men, I guess, but it would be kind of odd because he, he dresses this really to, to all brethren, doesn't he? Can women remain faithful for long periods of time? Well, yeah, obviously. And so it applies to all of us. We want to be those who, who can go from the point of being little children to be those who have been faithful for a long time, like he addresses the fathers there, who have been faithful since the beginning. And they have been faithful to him who is from the beginning. They have been faithful to God and faithful to Christ. Alright, let's look next at verse 15. And I've been talking a whole lot. So someone want to read verse 15. Uh, verse 15 and 16. Someone want to read that. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Can I go further? Yeah, just verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Okay, so I think it's probably safe to say if we have been a Christian for very long, we probably have heard these verses thousands of times, right? Yes, the world holds nothing for us, but we kind of, can, can we kind of, if we're not careful, we say that and we kind of just, okay, yeah, I've read that before. But if you go back and look at verse 15, this is John really giving a commandment. He doesn't say, he just, it's not an encouragement, he just flat out says, do not love the world or anything that is in the world, or the things up in the world there in verse 15. Now the things in the world, we could, we could class, we could talk about all those things. We know we can talk about money, we can talk about uh, the love of money, we can talk about uh, vehicles being, some, being what's important to people, big homes being important to people. Uh, on and on it goes. You know, the certain having the right uh, friendships in the world, things like that, having that right click, stuff like that. Those are things that are in the world, right? And the list goes on and on, on and on. But he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now he's not talking about earth itself. He's not talking about mountains and rainbows and stuff like that. He's talking about sinful things that live in this world today. He says, if anyone loves the world. <clears throat> and here's the warning. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
Now we have read that probably, like I said before, thousands of times. But he's, what he's plainly telling us is, if you love the world, if you love these sinful things, then you don't love God, what he's talking about there in verse 15. Now John, not unlike other writers of the, of the Bible, makes it very plain, doesn't he? If we love the world, we do not love God. He says the love of the Father is not in him. That is, we don't love God. That's who the Father is a reference to. And then he mentions there uh, in verse 16, For all that is in the world, he mentions the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now if you were to turn over, I'm going to try to do this, first to Mark chapter 4, and look at verse 19. He says, and the cares, now he's talking about in context, he's talking about the, the parable of the sower. But notice what he, what he explains here a little bit. He says, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, entering, entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Does he just mention there some of the things that are of the world? The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things, entering in, choke the word, and becomes unfruitful. Those are some things we can think about when we think about the things that are of the world. If you look at uh, Galatians 5, I believe you pick up about verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, right? Which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, which I tell you beforehand, as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, those are some things referencing all that is in the world. Can we say that he is exactly right? You know, we were listening to the radio on the way up here. We're listening to the, the, the 60s station because that's what we feel like. But anyway, we were listening to that and, and sometimes, you know, you hear songs that, you know, they're perfectly fine, whatever. And then you hear a song and you think, wait a minute, did I just say that? And the song is about uh, a man and a woman and how the man cheated on his spouse and so she went and shot him. And that's what it was about. And this is from like 1960-something. And we were just hearing the pull in when we heard that. I said, wow, did you hear that? That turned dark real quick, didn't it? Uh, but you know, that's the kind of stuff this world is full of, right? It's full of jealousy. It's full of murder. It's full of envy. It's full of wrath. And like all the things he's mentioned here in Galatians 5, uh, verse 19 through verse 21. And so when we say things are in the world, that's what we're referencing there in verse 16. Now, he also references, we go back here to 1 John uh, 2, looking at verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world, and we've talked about that, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life, which we'll get to those three things next. But what I want us to look at quickly before we close is that word lust is desire, craving, a longing for. So it's that craving for whatever your eyes see, you crave it, right? 
the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, whether it appeals to your flesh, appeals to your eyes, that pride of life, that desire for those sinful type of things. Now, the lust, lust of the eyes, and we'll do this quickly. Lust of the eyes are evil, evil desires that you see with their eyes. This could be things prompted by uh, immoral movies, immoral plays, books, pictures, uh, anything. Someone who's not dressed appropriately walking around in front of us, and let's be honest, sometimes it doesn't take that. Sometimes we just have corrupt eyes and we see someone we think is attractive and it leads to impure thoughts, doesn't it? That's what he's talking about here, the lust of the eyes. Uh, I got too far there. Pro- uh, I missed the, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh, we really have already mentioned a little bit of. Uh, desire for what is forbidden or carnal desires. Lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes, at least in my opinion, can go hand in hand. Because you desire things that are fleshly, it could be referencing an individual, or it could be referencing just sinful things in general. And then you have the, simple, the lust of the eyes, which things we see with our eyes that, are, that are, uh, prompt us to think and impure thoughts and lead to something much worse. And then the pride of life is a boasting pride that some say the vain glory of life, as the American Standard says there. Uh, many translate this now as vain glory or worldly honor. And so we see what? These types of lust and this pride that we see around people today. I mean, you can't say the world isn't full of pride when we have parades that are dedicated to sinful things, right? I mean, the world obviously is very arrogant in the various sins which it uh, holds dear. And then he says, it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. So these sinful things are not from God. These sinful things are not approved of by God. And so for that reason, we should stay way far away from them. We recognize, of course, sometimes that's much easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, sin creeps into our minds if we're not careful. If we're, if we're honest, at least in my opinion, when we wake up in the morning and we start going about our day, it doesn't take very long for temptation to start coming in, right? You go to listen to a podcast, and because of the way things are set up, you see something else that's suggested over here. Before you know it, you're way off from where you originally started listening to something you have no business listening to. You know, YouTube is real bad about that, suggesting videos and things that, no matter what you're watching currently, can suggest things that you have no business in watching. And so sin can enter in and enter into our day very, very quickly uh, before we even, if we're not careful, before we even recognize what's going on. Okay, we're going to stop there this morning. Uh, when we come back next week, we'll probably come back and look at verse 16 a little bit more. Uh, next week, but we'll look at verses 16 and 17 and continue to move forward there. And so I do thank you for your time and for your attention, and we'll stop there this morning, and we'll come back at the worship hour here in about 12 minutes.